Today's Bible reading is taken from 1 John, chapter 4, verses 13 to 21. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen and he has given us this command whoever loves God must also love his brother this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God we're going to sit under God's word this morning and may I begin by adding my welcome to all of you whether you're here in church this morning or joining us live or after the event by YouTube it's a great privilege to be able to join with you as we explore God's word this morning. It's a particular joy, of course, to have John with us this morning, and we hope you and Debs and the family are settling in well. I know there'll be lots and lots of boxes to unpack and get sorted and find places for everything, but we're all greatly hoping and praying that uh, you'll settle in well, and we're very much looking forward to your ministry amongst us, so welcome. We're continuing our study of John's first letter, and today we come to the closing verses of chapter 4. As we do so, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Sometimes that word can be difficult. It can seem difficult to understand, perhaps even confusing. But, Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, your spirit indwelling each one of us, this morning and through our lives, you would make your word clear to us and help us indeed to stand on every promise contained within it. Amen. These closing verses of chapter 4 draw this particular section of the letter together. It's worth spending just a few moments to remind ourselves of the situation that John was seeking to address in this letter. The letter wasn't written to any specific church, but was circulated as a pastoral letter to a number of Gentile, non-Jewish congregations across the region we know as Asia Minor. These congregations would have been influenced very strongly by Greek philosophy, thought, and teaching, which was the dominant cultural influence at the time. And the challenge was that Greek philosophy rejected as utterly unthinkable the, the idea that any god, with a small g or a large g, could come in human form to earth, and worse still, that they'd suffer and die at the hands of humans. It just was not logical to them. What mattered in Greek thought was things of the spirit. The body was regarded as of no consequence as evil. And these beliefs had led many in these Gentile churches that John was writing to, to deny Jesus as the Messiah. Because how, according to Greek thought, could God with a capital G come to earth as human and 
be put to death on a cross. And because they'd rejected the, the, the Messiah, Jesus, they were starting to live immoral lives which failed to sow practical love for their brothers and sisters while still claiming to know God and to belong to God and somehow having some superior knowledge, some superior spiritual insight that put them above the rest of the group, which was leading to division within the churches, leaving those who held to the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, shaken and uncertain about what they'd been taught. Though the prevailing philosophies have changed down the years, a lot of that sounds horribly familiar, doesn't it? The church today is going off in all sorts of different directions, rejecting the messiahship of Christ. So it is that this letter remains so relevant for us today. And here in these concluding verses of chapter 4, John develops the two great statements in which his pre- with which his previous paragraph concludes, and that Mike opened for us last week, that God lives in us, and that his love is made complete in us. And critically, John goes on to demonstrate how this can only be possible if Jesus is the Son of God and the Saviour of the world. So in a world awash with fake news, where truth is claimed to be relative and individual and where to doubt is fashionable, one of the commonest challenges levelled at evangelicals is how we can be sure about God's promises. The answer is that we find the truth here, here in God's word, the Bible, where we discover time and time again God's promises and their fulfillment. Often promises fulfilled in the most unlikely and against, most unlikely of ways and against all the odds, but we can sure, be sure also because of our experience and knowledge of God indwelling us through his Holy Spirit as we follow the psalmist's injunction to taste and see that the Lord is good. So turn with me if you've got either a a printed Bible with you or a a Bible on an electronic device to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 13 as we consider these verses. We can split the passage into two sections. Firstly, we're going to consider verses 13 to 16 where we consider God's indwelling and then verses 17 to the end where we consider the reality of perfect love. starting with that first section, verses 13 to 16. And central to our understanding of this passage here is the role of the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, John writes, We know that we live in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. Now we can understand the word know, either in the sense of knowing something to be true, either as a result of a process of logical deduction, or as a result of our experience. Not a very good illustration, but I'm going to try to illustrate it like this. Whilst I understand the basic laws that explain powered flight, I would find it very hard to know personally by a process of logical deduction that the aeroplane I was sitting in as a passenger that was at the end of a runway and about to take off was going to get airborne before it reached the far end of the runway. I simply don't have sat there in that seat, strapped in, the information or ability to undertake all the calculations that would be necessary to achieve this or to check that all the necessary maintenance had been undertaken and any repairs completed. Experientially, however, based on a number of factors like the airline and past experience and accident statistics, I can have, hopefully, a very high degree of certainty that it's going to do so. I have to say over the years there have been one or two occasions I've been slightly less confident including the occasion when on the tarmac of one of the Moscow airports they get the stepladders out and start taking the engine to pieces. Slightly disconcerting. Then they took us away again back to the terminal building. But I'm still here. 
so any fears proved to be unfounded. My confidence, though, is based on experience, although thankfully I can be assured that all the calculations underpinning the design and operation of the aircraft are in place as well. And here in verse 13, as elsewhere in the letter, it's apparent John is using the word know in the sense of knowing as a consequence of our conscious experience of God, working in our lives by the power of his spirit. We aren't deducing theoretically that we have God's spirit in us, although scripture tells us that God pours out his spirit on all who believe. Rather, we know the power of God's spirit at work in our lives by our experience and how our lives and the lives of others are changed by God's spirit alive and at work within us. But at the same time, we know what's bringing about that change. We know we're experiencing the power of God's spirit at work in us because of the truths we read in scripture that tells us that God pours out his spirit on us. See, the thing is, in our fallen and unredeemed state, we're both spiritually blind, meaning we're unable to believe, and we're also selfish, meaning that we're unable to love perfectly. And we don't have to look very far around us to recognize the reality of those two statements. And I won't depress you by reeling off a litany of examples. By contrast, it's only by the grace of the Holy Spirit alive and at work within us that we're able to love Christ and others. And we know this to be true because if we turn to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, Paul there tells us that the first of the fruits of the Spirit is love. Many other things beside, but the first of the fruits of the Spirit is love. Love that should be manifest, that should be being poured out within the church community amongst Christians. So hopefully we can begin to make sense of that rather complicated argument that John, almost a circular argument that John's setting out in this verse here. Before we move on to see how it points us inexorably to Jesus as both Son of God and Saviour of the world. So to try and summarise, we know that we live in God because he, that's God himself, has given us of his spirit. And we know he's given us of his spirit because we've come to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and to live in love. God gives us of his spirit, which allows us to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and to live in love, love for God and love for those around us. And scripture tells us God pours out his spirit on all who confess that Jesus is Lord. But before that can happen in full, we're drawn to the point of being able to confess Jesus as Lord by the working of God's spirit given to us in part to lead us to that place of being able to confess Jesus is Lord. Which brings us to verse 14, which lies at the heart of our Christian faith, that Jesus is both the Son of God and Saviour of the world, Messiah, Christ, the Christ, the Anointed One. The point which was causing so much division in the churches John was writing to. Because at the heart of the, quest, at the, heart of the gospel is the question, who is Jesus? If you ask many people, they say he's a good man, a great teacher, somebody who worked miracles, a puzzle, a stumbling block. Sadly, for the vast majority, probably nothing more than a complete irrelevance, a swear word. Someone who lived around 2,000 years ago and who has no meaning for them today. Before we're too critical, even Jesus' disciples struggled with the reality of who Jesus was. 
Peter, who confessed Jesus Lord, then demonstrated how little he understood of what that meant in his next breath. And it was perhaps Thomas, poor old doubting Thomas, who eventually came to express the truth about Jesus so unequivocally and so clearly. Having voiced his incredulity when the disciples told him they'd met with the risen Lord Jesus on the first Easter Sunday, earning him that dubious soubriquet of doubting Thomas, it was Thomas who went on to proclaim Jesus, my Lord and my God. When the risen Jesus appeared to him the following Sunday, you might be wrestling with the question as to who Jesus really is this morning. And if so, it's wonderful that you're with us. Thank you for joining us as we consider the answer to that question. If you are wondering what the Christian faith is all about and would like to know more, please feel free to come and talk to John or myself after the service if you're able to, or uh, to contact us by phone or email. Contact details are on the church website. For the reality is that Jesus is nothing less than the Son of God and Saviour of the world. How do we know this to be true? Well, not only do we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God's indwelling presence with us day by day to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God, to bring us to that point of confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. We've also got the eyewitness account of John himself. In verse 14, John tells us, we've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. By the time he wrote this letter, John was an old man, but crucially, he'd been one of the original disciples who'd been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Seen him perform those miracles, make the, 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 the blind see, the mute speak, the deaf hear, the lame leap like a deer. Who'd seen Jesus crucified, who'd encountered the risen Lord Jesus on that first Easter Sunday. We have the testimony of the Spirit that Jesus is the Saviour. We have the eyewitness testimony of, Jesus, of John himself that Jesus came from the Father to be the Saviour of the world. Now eyewitness testimony on its own can't bring us to true faith. That's the analytical side of knowing and ultimately something which places the onus on our own endeavours, our own reasoning in trying to deduce that Jesus is the Son of God, which is thus ultimately us trying to earn our salvation, trying to earn a place in heaven. The reality is, we can be saved by faith alone. Faith in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Sole fide, one of the battle cries of the Reformation. But we ignore the testimony of those who were eyewitnesses to Christ's life, death and resurrection at our peril. Such accounts may help lead those who are wavering and struggling to come to faith. And I know I've found it helpful over the years to be reminded time and again of the eyewitness accounts of those who were there with Jesus 2,000 years ago as he walked through Palestine. But why does it matter who Jesus is? The world that John refers to as the sinful, fallen world, estranged from God, under the dominion of Satan, yet despite the world having turned its back and rejected God, God the Father doesn't reject the world. We go back to the very opening Verses of the Bible, we read how God created the world perfect in every way. God, at the end of each day of creation, God says, it was good. But ever since Adam and Eve did the one thing God expressly forbade them to do, we've been screwing it up. Looking at the way we've rejected God, we're setting about systematically destroying each other and God's perfect creation. God would have been perfectly justified in turning his back on the world and leaving it to its own devices. But thankfully God isn't like that because as John tells us in verse 16 of chapter 3 of his gospel, 
God so loved the world that what did he do? He didn't turn his back on it. He gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So it is that if anyone, anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Hopefully you can begin to see where all this is leading now. We're only able to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and Saviour of the world by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 15 of 1 John chapter 4 reminds us that if anyone acknowledges Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in, in them and they in God. And when we do so, we're able to know and rely on the love that God has for us. That perfect love, that perfect love that gave his only Son to die for us so that we should go free. We'll come to the implications of that in just a moment. We can have the head knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. We can know the Bible inside out, back to front, upside down. We can know that God is love. We can know that God so loved the world. But that alone will not help us to live in love other than out of a sense of moral duty. We need to step out in faith. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good and allow his spirit to fill us, to empower us to love God and to love our neighbor. What did we pray in the confession? We prayed for God's forgiveness because we haven't loved you, God, with all our heart. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Even with God's spirit, we still get it wrong time after time after time again. I know I do. The existence of love isn't something we can prove. Rather, it's something we have to experience. To truly live in love is something we can only do if the God of love lives in us and we in him. And so we come now to the second part of our passage, verses 17 to 21, in which John focuses on the perfection of our love for God and God's love for us. Before we go any further, we need to be clear that in this life, our love for God, or for that matter, one another, can never be truly perfect. Rather, our love should be focused on God and realized in love for our brothers and sisters. Verse 17 and 18 focus on the perfect acceptance that we find in God's love. In verse 16, John reminds us that God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Although we use the, 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 the male pronoun, a lot of this, of course, um, ladies, you are included in God's love. But now we discover one of the consequences of God's perfect love made complete amongst us. And that is that we have no fear, no fear on the day of judgment. Why should this be so? Well, in verse 18 we read, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear, fear has to do with punishment. Let's take a moment to unpack this amazing truth. The reality is that love and fear are mutually incompatible. And like oil and water, you put the two and uh, unless you emulsify them, they will naturally separate. Although not fashionable, if we're to faithfully proclaim God's word, we can't avoid the reality of the judgment that scripture promises time and again we will all face on the last day. And that last day will be a truly dreadful occasion as all humanity from all time stands before the throne of God to face judgment. But for those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there will be no fear because there will be no punishment for us to face. For whilst 
there is judgment because our holy and righteous God can tolerate no evil, no sin. Our God is also perfectly just, which means that because Jesus bore the punishment for our sin as he died on the cross on Good Friday, we can't be punished a second time for the same offence. Which brings us back again for the second time this morning to John 3.16. God's love for his fallen sinful world is so great, so perfect, he stopped short of nothing less than giving his one and only son to bear the punishment due to each one of us for our death, for our sin, and that's the death penalty, so that we should go free, so that we should have nothing to fear on that last day. We'll have nothing to fear on that day because God's perfect love in giving his son to die for us, meaning that we'll walk free on that day. So it is that God's perfect love for us drives out fear because fear has its roots in a fear of judgment, fear of punishment. But that punishment has been removed from us by God's love. If we do still fear, and many devout Christians still do, it's a sign that we still have a way to go in God perfecting his love within us. still vividly remember one evening at university, not long after having gone up, sitting and talking with the then girlfriend of a school friend of mine, both of whom were devout Christians. At the time, I was still taking uncertain steps towards becoming a Christian. And I was quite taken aback by her words. as She said, of course, I'm not afraid of dying. These words really struck me as an 18-year-old non-believer at the time. That age, we like to think we're immortal, don't we? But if I was honest, I was afraid of what death would bring. But thankfully, 40 or so years later, I can share her sentiments as I've grown in my love for God and understanding of his promises as God's spirit lives amongst me. God has loved us perfectly through his son and in so doing removed any cause we could have to fear that last day. But we can only know the peace that comes from that promise if we live in God and he in us. And finally, to round off this whole section, John reminds us of a few home truths. In verse 19, we're reminded again that we love because he, that's God, first loved us. John reminds us again, just in case we'd started to get any other ideas, that it's God who takes the initiative, not us. It's God who took the initiative and gave his son so that we need not fear the day of judgment. In words recorded in chapter 15 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, Greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And who did Jesus say were his friends? All of us here this morning. Perfect love takes away fear. Now, please, if you're fearful, don't think you're being criticized. Please pray. Ask others to pray for you that you might know the peace of God which passes all understanding. That peace which comes from knowing God and being known perfectly by him. And then finally, in verses 20 and 21, in what was clearly a bit of a sideswipe at some of the divisions in the early church that John was seeking to counter. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Strong words that John's using here. For anyone who doesn't love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. And he's given this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our love for God has to be reflected by our love for our brothers and sisters. 
For love is the defining mark of the Christian. And we need to demonstrate our love for God by the way we love and care for each other. If we don't love our brothers and sisters all around us, how can we claim to love God who we can't see? Brothers and sisters, if a stranger were to walk in here this morning, do you think they would sense they were entering a community that genuinely loved one another? If you're here for the first time this morning, please feel free to tell us your impressions. I know it's difficult at the moment with the remaining COVID restrictions hampering so many things, but in many ways that creates new opportunities, new opportunities to love and help one another. Whilst on the surface all may seem well amongst us, there are many, many people who are hurting in all sorts of different ways. Our challenge is that whilst we may be very strong in what we believe and in our love for God, do we reflect that in what we do in our love for others? As evangelicals, we have for many years fought shy of involvement in practical action out of fear that it should result in somehow doctrine of salvation by works taking hold, that all of our good work can somehow earn us a place in heaven. And scripture is abundantly clear that this can never be the case. Salvation is found solely in the saving work of Jesus on the cross. However, but we can't ignore the call to love others expressed, expressed in response to the perfect love first shown to us by God. When asked what the greatest command was, Jesus replied, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving our neighbor form indivisible parts of the same command. Provided we always remember that it was God who first loved us and that anything we do is in response to that perfect love shown to us, we have nothing to fear. Loving others isn't something the ministry team do. Well, they do, but not alone. Sorry. <laughs> the wrong way around, <laughs> We know you do. <laughs> a ministry team can't love alone all of us. The needs are far greater than that. And we all need to do our part in loving others, whether by responding to calls for help, keeping an eye out for those in need, offering to chat, whether over a cup of tea, over the phone, or a socially distanced walk, providing a meal to a family in need. If you aren't able to do any of these things, then please pray. Pray for those who are in distress at this time as we seek to rebuild our life together following the ravages of COVID. It's going to be even more vital that we demonstrate real practical love for each other that reflects the perfect love that God's first shown towards each one of us. And I'm conscious that... conscious we may have touched on some difficult and challenging topics this morning. If that's the case, please speak to John or myself after the service or via the office. Ask one of us to get in touch with you. Please, please, please be encouraged. Please be encouraged. Despite the doubts that Satan may sow in our, in our minds, when we remember the price that's been paid for our freedom, nothing less than the death of God's own son, God isn't going to reject or forsake us. He loves us too much. He's paid too high a price for that to be the case. But yes, life is a difficult journey. It throws all sorts of challenges at us. But with God for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the promises that we have in your word. And Father, we pray now that as we go out from here, as we reflect on these words, as we go out into the world, the days and weeks and months and years ahead of us, God willing, 
that you would empower us by your spirit dwelling within us. Help us to grow in love for you and love for one another. But Father, help us to remember that all that we do is in response to the perfect love you first showed us in giving your son Jesus Christ to die upon the cross. Amen.